see what God has to say uh, to us today. So 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19. God's Word says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. As you may have gathered in this reading of God's Word, we are presented with a, a heavy and difficult passage this morning dealing with suffering and persecution among God's people. A headline from January 13th, 2021, so that was earlier this year, in a, in a Forbes article, the headline read this. It said, one in eight Christians worldwide live in countries where they may face persecution. And when it means persecution there, it's severe persecution. Uh, Open Doors, uh, if you remember last week we had a video, Open Doors hosted that video. It led us in praying for the persecuted church. Uh, they, they established these stats from October 2019 to September 2020, so a year's span. More than 340 million Christians live in countries where they could be subject to severe levels of persecution. Quoting that article, they said one in eight, that's one in eight worldwide, one in six in Africa, two out of five in Asia, and one in 12 in Latin America, just below our borders. Continuing during during this period, listen to this stat, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches or church buildings were attacked, and 4,277 Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. Uh, North Korea often ranks at the top of the list of worst places for Christians to be. It's the highest level of Christian persecution, and it's estimated in the borders of North Korea that there are This is a staggering statistic. 50,000 to 70,000 Christians that are being imprisoned for their faith, suffering on the cause of Christ. Near to our borders, just recently, about a month ago, an American Christian organization sent 17 Christian missionaries to uh, the island nation of Haiti, where they were captured and they are still being held. Uh, In fact, we... In researching last night, we just really don't know anything about them. We don't know anything about their whereabouts, their well-being. It seems as though their captors have let on that at least some of them are still alive, but we just don't know. We don't have any information, and so we continue to pray for them. We pray that God has sustained them and that they are, this is, this is the highest prayer that we have, that they are a powerful witness to their captors, to their persecutors, um, that they would display the love of Christ. 
And so, as we look now, kind of sets the backdrop for where we're headed in this passage. Suffering and persecution is, is the main theme of Peter's letter. He's writing to a people who are suffering for their faith. God's people were suffering for their faith and, and belief in the gospel. And so my hope this morning for you, family, is to equip this church to understand the spiritual growth that comes from suffering for our faith, and also with that, the glory that Christians bring to God when they suffer well. Now, if we're, if we're honest, this is, it's a hard topic for us to tackle in our cultural context. Relatively speaking, we're not in danger of losing our lives for our faith as we sit here this morning. However, as is often the case when we preach passages like this, I don't also want to belittle the the honor and shame aspect of our Christian faith in our everyday lives. I believe it's safe to assume that we now live uh, in America in a post-Christian culture. There was once a time when being a Christian was well regarded in our communities, and this attitude is waning And so we may not suffer physical persecution for our faith, but we have witnessed an increase of attacks on churches stateside. We saw one last year in Texas where an armed man came into a church, and so we're seeing that sort of thing increase. But if we're honest, by and large, our suffering is more in the shame variety, being shamed for our faith, not necessarily physically persecuted. And an example is just watch TV for a few hours, watch the latest sitcoms, and you'll quickly find that Christians are rarely, if ever, painted in a positive light on network TV. And so this brings us to our main idea for this morning. Our main idea is this. There is no shame for suf- in suffering for Jesus. There is no shame in suffering for Jesus. Peter says this in verse 12, And then we'll skip to verse 16. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him do this. Glorify God in that name. You see, in this passage, verse 12 places us in the context of of Peter's conversation. I can imagine maybe, I'm reading into this a little bit, perhaps uh, Peter is working on this letter, he's, he's dictating it to the person who wrote it for him, and in the midst of penning this letter, he receives news of more attacks on his beloved in these churches all throughout Asia. It may explain, if, you, if you've noticed, this has been a repetitive theme throughout the letter. It may explain the, the repetition of these statements throughout this passage, but we're not, I mean, we're not certain of those circumstances, but it is clear that Peter is writing to a people who are suffering for their faith, and they are in desperate need of encouragement. And so Peter himself is facing suffering for the faith, witnessing suffering for the faith. He digs into his personal witness, the depth of his personal witness. He witnessed this. He witnessed our Savior suffer at the hands of the Jews and the Romans as he was nailed to the cross, as he was whipped and beaten, as his blood was shed, as Christ suffered on our behalf. Peter witnessed these things. Peter witnessed the way that Christ suffered well. And Peter is also a faithful witness himself in suffering. 
We're going to refer to Acts chapter 5 quite a bit. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see where Peter is, suffers repeatedly and is persecuted repeatedly for his proclamation of the gospel and the good news about Jesus and what he has done. And when he is commanded to stop preaching, staring authority boldly in the face, he declares this, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. Verse 16, if we look at verse 16, grants us insight into uh, this term, Christian. I don't know if you know this, but early Christians didn't identify themselves by this term, Christian. They identified themselves as this, as members of the way. They were part of the way, is what they called themselves. But another, Christian was a mocking term, a more mocking term began to stick to them. They, that is we, we're Christians, by and large in this room, were originally called that term in a, in a demeaning sense, and yet Peter instructs, using that word, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, what, not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of your name, but let him glorify God in that name. Today we continue, family, to bear this name, the name of Christ. We are Christians. We are Christians. And so we're going to look at at three key truths that Peter reveals to us throughout this passage. Truth number one is this. Being shamed for Christ refines us. Being shamed for Christ refines us. Back in chapter one, if you were if you remember, Peter uses some some language around gold. He instructed that the genuineness of our faith is tested. He used that word tested. He says that it is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Our faith is, in that passage, likened to the refining fire that is placed to precious metals in their basic state. So miners bring gold out of the ground, and they don't leave it in that natural state. They apply extreme heat to the gold, and it refines the gold. It melts away all the impurities, so you're, you're left with pure gold, right? Everybody wants a, a ring on their finger. If it's gold, that's actually gold, not a bunch of impurities, right? I want a gold ring if you're going to give me a gold ring. The heat purifies the metal, melting away impurity, refining it, and making it more pure and precious. Peter likens our faith in Christ to that process. And he picks up on this language again here in verse 12. Then we'll skip to verses 17 and 18. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised, hear this, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love this warning from Peter because he's just laying it out there. This is the way it is. Don't be surprised when people push back against your faith. He goes on, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God or those who are outside of the faith? And then he quotes Old Testament scripture. He says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Simply put, trials and suffering test and refine our faith in God and prove, this is a word I want you to remember this morning, they prove the genuineness of our conversion or the genuineness of our faith. We should not see the trials we face as as this, as luck or fate or happenstance, but rather they are God's purposeful refining of his people. 
It's his purposeful refining of his people. Later in this section, Peter says an interesting statement. I don't know if you picked up on it. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, why would he say that? He's hearkening back to the Old Testament scriptures. Whenever the Old Testament scriptures speak of God's people, they speak in a manner similar to this. God's judgment always begins with his own. He judges, and I guess we could read this as discipline. He disciplines his own first. Judgment begins at the church. And our judgment comes in the form of a a refining or a testing that proves, again, what? The genuineness of our faith. We desire in this church to see people come to a genuine faith in Christ Jesus. Not a surface level faith, not a a social club, but a genuine transformation, an inward transformation where there is true depth of faith in Christ that is unshakable in the face of suffering and persecution and pain. And so the question comes about, do you run to God when life becomes difficult or do you run away? Do you run to him or do you run from him? If we're honest, we see this play out in the local church. People go through trials. Some of those trials are of their, their own doing. Let's say, say a drug relapse or an embarrassing exposure of their, of their personal life, their personal sin. And unfortunately, many respond in shame, running away from the very place where they can receive help, love, and support. That's what the, the family of God should represent is loving support of those who are going through trials and pain and hurt. They run away from the loving arms of Jesus. Jesus' loving arms are, ma- are manifest in the body of Christ. They're made known through us, through the church, serving and loving one another. If you remember last week, Peter said that love covers what? A multitude of sins. And the reality is, the truth, the scary part is, is they may be exposing, those who run may be exposing that they never truly had genuine faith in Christ in the first place. They may be exposing their heart. And so we count it a blessing when our faith is tested in this present life to ensure that it is genuine. This is the love of God, that he's, he's patient. He says later in 2 Peter, he's not slow to fulfill his promise. What he means when he says promise is his return and final judgment. Because he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he refines us in this present time, and that's his love, because God doesn't want to see you get to that finish line without genuine faith and stand before him in judgment. We want... we need to be judged by the righteousness of another, that is Christ Jesus. And the testing of our faith refines us to ensure that that faith, that confidence that we have in Christ is genuine, is true, is a saving faith. And our struggle in this, in this present world, our judgment and testing of our faith, it pales in comparison. This is a warning now to the final judgment that is to come to those in unbelief. Peter speaks to the final judgment. Looking to Paul's writings, he says this in 1 Corinthians 11.32, he says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with 
the world. God's judgment on us now, our discipline on us now is beautiful because it's refining us for that future judgment. Those who don't receive that and don't have genuine faith in Christ, those who are outside of his salvation, who have not placed their faith and trust in him, they stand judgment on their own works. And the reality is this, the word of God teaches if you stand before God on your own sinful accord that you will be condemned to an eternity of torment in hell. My father, when I was probably about 10, 11 years old, uh, we were taking a day trip down to um, downtown Los Angeles. And there's a section of Los Angeles that's called Skid Row. Have you guys heard of Skid Row before? Skid Row, by and large, is where is, where the, is the area where uh, the homeless live, the, the drug addicts. Uh, it's just a very sad and depressing place. There's people in the streets uh, injecting themselves with drugs, walking around. There's, it's just kind of lawlessness, screaming at each other, um, walking in the streets, They're sleeping on the streets. It's just a sad place. And I remember my dad at about 10, 11 years old, he said, Son, I'm going to take you uh, down to this place, and, and in a sense, we're going to learn a lesson today. And he drove me through Skid Row at 10, 11 years old. Think about one of the darkest places you can drive through. And that's, that's it, people coming up. as You, you can't drive fast because there's people just walking around in the streets and beating on the window, asking for money. And remember as we drove through that, I'm terrified. I'm scared. But my dad took me through that, and, and as we came out, then we went off and went down to a nicer area of downtown L.A. and got lunch, and he talked with me about the reason why he had done that. He said, I don't want you to end up down there. And so I, I'm guiding you and I'm showing you the, the consequences of bad decisions in your life and poor decisions and immoral living can end up in a place like that. And I don't want that for you. I want something better for you. And I see that in this passage here that God wants something better for us and he takes us through a street like that and a trial where we see the ugliness and the darkness of the world all around us to bring us through the other side and say, I don't want that for you. I want something better for you. God takes us through some stuff because he loves us and desires to refine our faith so that we may be proven genuine and not perish with those in unbelief. Jesus talked a lot. I'm not going to get into this this morning, but Jesus talked a lot about the narrow gate and the white gate. He talked about the sheep and the goats. Go back and read those stories and view it in light of this passage. Our second point this morning, being shamed for Christ identifies us. Being shamed for Christ identifies us. When we suffer in the manner that Jesus has suffered, and I'm referring here to, to true suffering, that, that which is not brought about by our sinful decisions, we, we encounter consequences for bad decisions that we've made, but rather suffering that occurs because we are Christians. That's the type of suffering we're looking at this morning. And because of that, we are identified with Jesus. Let's look and see what Peter says in verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you, hear this, share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is 
revealed, simply put, our response to suffering, this sounds crazy, is that we rejoice. Because this is the reason why we rejoice. Not because it's enjoyable to go through suffering. Not because pain feels great. Okay, I don't like pain. Everybody avoids pain if they can. But we rejoice because of this truth. When you suffer for Christ, we are identified with Him. Peter said we share in His sufferings. We share in His struggle. Our Christian identity is at the core of who we are. We are identified with Christ when we suffer with Him. We are, this is something we need to grab hold to because our identity in our culture is in everything oftentimes but Jesus. We are family Christians first. We are in Christ above all other things, above being fathers and mothers, husbands and wives. I got to get my Kentucky here. Mamas and papas. Did I say that right? Before, <laughs> Mimi's. <laughs> All your weird little grandparent titles, okay? (laughs) My grandparents were grandma and grandpa. Okay. Before, Before we are Christians, before our job titles like pastor or firefighter or soldier or stay at home mom or nurse or doctor or carpenter or plumber or attorney or teacher we are identified with Christ above these above our sinful identities alcoholic or drug addict or adulterer or gossip we are identified with Christ above our health identities depressed or bipolar or cancer survivor narcoleptic or diabetic all the different identities that we have we are first and foremost this family Christians In our suffering and in all of life, those of genuine faith are this. We have this title. We are in Christ. Oftentimes when someone emails me and they're a follower of Jesus and my response back to them at the little end greeting, I put in Christ. We're identified with Christ. Peter and his Christian brothers back in Acts chapter 5 were proclaiming the gospel. And they were commanded, they were demanded by the authorities to stop doing so. And they defied the order. They kept proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection. And the result of that is that they were, they were beaten and they suffered for their faith. But it says this about them in, in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 to 42. It says, then they left. This is after they got a beat down, basically. It says, then they left the presence of the council, and this is what they were doing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Whose name were they suffering dishonor for? For the name of Christ. And every day, it says, in the temple... And from house to house, this was their response. This was their response to be quiet and take a beating. This is their response. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's the man that wrote this letter that we're reading right now. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. When you are shamed for Christ, the question is this, do you count it all joy to suffer for His name? Or do we flee from the first sign of rejection and pushback? 
in this, we're, even, we're confronted with the reality that we, we should get pushback for our beliefs. The Bible says in, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul instructing Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, hear this, will be persecuted. You may be thinking like, why are we talking about this, Keith? Can't we talk about marriage or finances or how to live the good life? I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. And you got to be ready. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Here's the truth. We believe, family, if we believe what the Bible says, we believe that there is one way to reconciliation with God. One. We believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that we need to receive the righteousness of Jesus through placing our confidence, faith, trust in His finished work, His perfect life, death, and resurrection. And through faith in Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. This is the gift we get. The forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. But our culture largely rejects these claims. Even in recent studies and surveys, some so-called Christians think that many paths lead to reconciliation with God. But true and undefiled Christian doctrine boldly proclaims this, in Christ alone our hope is found. And if our hope is found in Jesus on that day of His glorious return, we will be glad when His glory is revealed. We'll be thankful that we were found in Christ. Our third point, being shamed for Christ glorifies God and humbles us. Being shamed for Christ glorifies God and humbles us. Peter says, we're going to split up this passage, 14, 16, and 19. He says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see that unification that we have with God, that when we suffer for Him, when we are insulted for the name of Christ, when you go at Thanksgiving and sit across from your family that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they say, you're out of your mind, you're crazy, you're a hypocrite, you're a hater. When they say those things, Peter says this, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says this, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus as you sit across and have these conversations with people who refuse to believe. He says, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls, hear this, entrust their souls to a faithful creator, capital C, creator. It's God while doing good. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying this, the God who created everything with his spoken word and all of his majesty and holiness and righteousness, his sovereign hand is upon you. You can rest in that creator God. Entrust your soul to a faithful God who cares about you. A constant theme in Peter's epistle is that of the glory of God. 
He concluded the, the previous passage that we looked at. He said, in order that in everything God may be glorified. When we suffer for our faith and prove the genuineness of our faith by suffering well, God is glorified. We are humbled. And that's a good position to be in. We're brought low so that God may be magnified in our lives. We're not ashamed of his name, but rejoice and praise his holy name. People will say, what, what's the source of peace and hope in your life when you're battling cancer? I have Jesus. That's the answer. I've entrusted my soul to a faithful creator. That's what we say. Peter ends this section by stating, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And he says this, while doing good. In other words, humble yourself and rely on God in the midst of of trials and hurt and pain. But even more than just humbling yourselves, we give him glory in the storm. Praise his name in the midst of the pain and take comfort in the words of Jesus. We're going to look at the words of Jesus, John 16, 33. May these be ever on your brain and entrusted to your heart. Jesus says this. Jesus knows a thing or two about suffering and rejection and pain and mockery. He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He says this, in the world you will have tribulation or trouble. He says this, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's good news. So what do we do? We're going to round out this passage today by looking to what, what do we do? What's our application? We're confronted by the reality that Christians in the West are by and large not suffering persecution for their faith. I'm thankful for that, and I give God praise and thanks for that every day. There are examples that we've seen pastors just north of us in Canada jailed for continuing to hold public gatherings, but I would say those are exceptions. I don't expect, I don't think any of us expect that the police are going to break down the door this morning and arrest us for gathering together to worship Jesus. None of us had that fear coming in here this morning. We have a level of comfort in our worship of God That's not present in other parts of the world. So what do we do? Our last point, what do we do? Do good. (laughs) Peter gets through this whole section, rejoice, glorify God, and the last thing he says, while doing good, do good. He says this in verse 15 and then skipping to 19, but let none of you suffer, he says this, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice the instruction of Peter. Let none suffer for sin. He says murder, theft, evildoer, meddler. The first few are obvious, right? Like, don't murder. Okay, got that. Jesus, though, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, qualified this command a little bit further. He said, don't even harbor this hatred. Don't steal. Again, as Jesus stated, don't even covet. Then he says this interesting phrase. 
Don't meddle. This word is the word I want to focus on. Let me get through this whole section before you say, hey, wait a minute, okay? Just let me get through this here. This is a word I believe that points to, or one aspect of it, that points to Christians involving themselves in issues where, in a sense, they need to mind their own business unless they address a deeper issue. Okay, we do meddling in somebody else's affairs is what? Involving yourself where you shouldn't be involved. Okay, so we don't strive to purposefully bring suffering on ourselves due to the involvement in aspects of other people's lives that are really just none of our business. Don't meddle in other people's business. Don't expect, here's the truth, don't expect, family, those in unbelief, those who don't follow Christ, to hold to the same morals and values that you do as a Christian. That's where we get ourselves in trouble and we start pointing the finger of judgment because we expect people that are outside of Christ, that don't have God's Holy Spirit, that don't read the instruction of His Word, to uphold the same values and morals that we do as followers of Christ. And we should not have that expectation of people. This happens in this way. When this, we get things out of order sometimes. When we first focus in our, in our approach with somebody by bringing the gospel to them, if our first focus is on their personal sin, a thing that they're struggling with, if that's the first thing that we attack, we're meddling in their business. Because we're focusing on the symptom rather than the root. We're focusing on their sin rather than this, their spiritual condition. That is of utmost importance. Perhaps we do this. We point out their sexual sin instead of first loving them by sharing the gospel, what Christ has done for them. We meddle ourselves, involving ourselves in their sin, but but the root of the issue is left alone. We're just attacking the symptom. You see, here's the reality. The core of all sinful action is this. Unbelief in the gospel. Unbelief in God. We do good by avoiding sin ourselves and loving others enough to have a conversation with them about this first. Their unbelief or their callousness towards Christ and His offer of grace before addressing their specific sinful behavior. We only need to look at the example of our Savior himself when he had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. He came to her first offering her this, living water. He offered her living water, and then the conversation worked towards the symptom of her unbelief. He addressed her spiritual condition and her need for him first before he got into the numerous sinful relationships that she had. Let's follow the model of Christ. Lastly, in our context where it is difficult to connect to severe persecution, what do we do in the meantime? I leave you with these three things. We do this. We pray, we prepare, and we persevere. Pray, prepare, and persevere. Pray. 
First, we pray for those, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are persecuted. We're mindful of them daily in our, in our devotional time. And it should be a transition to a thankful heart from us that God has provided us this place where we can freely worship Christ. But we also pray, because the time may be coming soon, that God would strengthen our faith for such a time when we face trial, when our faith is pushed back in a more, in a more severe fashion, that we pray that, that God would strengthen us now in our faith that we would prove genuine in that time of testing. The second thing, we prepare. We prepare ourselves for persecution, okay? I'm not talking about stockpiling food. If that's your thing, that's fine. Give me your address so I can come to your house when things get ugly and I can eat, okay? I'm not talking about those types of things. What I mean by prepare is to prepare for persecution is to, one, acknowledge that it may come. There's a lot of countries where people are now persecuted where they never expected that they would be. It may come. What do we do? We prepare by entrusting his word to our heart, knowing the word of God. We prepare now. Okay, it's like... I used to like to watch uh, mixed martial arts fighting, you know, like that savage beatings that they, I don't know why I liked it. I don't really watch it that much anymore, but that's more of a financial decision because they're really expensive. So those, you can't get in the ring with a cage fighter and expect to do well unless you what? You train and prepare ahead of time. You got to jog, you got to work out. Okay, you got to spar, you have to do all, you have to prepare. We can't expect to be able to withstand persecution if we're not preparing ourselves beforehand. And how do we prepare? We entrust the Word of God to our heart. We pray. Okay, we, we prepare by doing good in the present time. Lastly, we prepare by fellowshipping with other believers, by being connected to the family of God. Lastly, we persevere. We persevere. We keep going. If persecution arises or suffering for the faith impacts you, we we persevere. We hold fast to Jesus because he's the one that said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's the one family who resurrected from the dead. Jesus is alive, and therefore we have nothing to fear if we are in Christ because Jesus has defeated sin and death already.